0: I called it, NARC mentality. (laughs) Now you're getting into it. That's, you know what I mean? And so then we had an incredible conversation about, um, I wanted to make a Dharma talk, I told you, about being present with the inner NARC or something like that. That's great. This idea that. that we're taught to police ourselves. In our own meditation practices, in our own contemplative practices, we can be policing our thoughts and our feelings and our sensations and emotions, judging ourselves, right? And just like those demons can really unfurl. And so the quality of attention that we're paying to our inner experience, that's where that loving awareness comes in, right? Because you can like notice that tendency to police your own experience and be like, ah, Loving awareness. Loving awareness is what is needed here.
1: So, uh, hope, hopefully he'll be merciful.
0: <laughs> I want no mercy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no mercy. Uh, So I want to start off with uh, a quote from actually someone both Duncan and I know. I'm not sure you know, Charles Eisenstein. Do you know Charles? Yeah? He has a lot of wise things to say from time to time. So this is around interbeing. The state of interbeing is a vulnerable state. It's the vulnerability of the naive altruist, of the trusting lover, of the unguarded sharer. To enter it, one must leave behind the seeming shelter of a control based life, protected by walls of cynicism, judgment, and blame. That's pretty powerful. The unguarded share, that's really, wow. So this, the, all of these, uh, these vulnerabilities and these, uh, the pointed uh, way in which trust is such a difficult thing for us. Because it implies uh, surrender for most people in the West, and we talk about it a lot. I used to talk about it with with Ramdas. Actually, if you, uh, maybe you were there. I don't know, but we were talking about trust, and I was saying the first time I had real trust was when I first met Ramdas. Uh, and actually, a, a picture of that was in the movie, the two of us together, me with long sideburns. Uh, it was the first day I ever met him. And he engendered a trust because he was living in a field of of no cynicism, no judgment, no blame, and basically not caring about what Richard needed, or Ramdas, for that matter. I felt so absolutely like I had entered into a warm pool of uh, a hot tub full of beautiful hot water and I could completely let go and just swim in it literally and figured it that
2: wouldn't that be a swimming pool
1: I had a I'm very big swim
2: in
0: it. I think it's a hot tub time machine yeah. oh you're. T- <laughs> you
1: that's exactly what it was so I said Ramdas this is what happened just looking in your eyes in that moment I felt completely t- complete total trust that led me to India to meet Neem Karoli Baba so I said what about you to Ramdas what did you trust do you remember what he said the mushroom yes <laughs> Isn't that great So um but just uh, Do you want to talk a little bit, Sarah, about the uh, vulnerability uh, that is involved with the the idea of interbeing? What the real, you know, the guts of it. You know, I love what he says about the naive altruist, the unguarded sharer, and the trusting lover.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think something that comes to my heart and mind right now is that It takes an incredible amount of trust to believe that, or maybe even to have a knowing that everything is going to be okay, even though we know that the body will not survive. These bodies weren't meant to survive. And so there's a level of trusting in a fundamental okayness, a fundamental um, goodness, Of the heart and the spirit and the soul, even though there are things that we wouldn't perceive as being good that will inevitably happen to us. And I think it takes a real like rawness and openness and courage to continually open up the heart, open up the heart to each person, to each being, even though we may have in our awareness that These beings may be holding trauma in their bodies, and due to that trauma and whatever kind of consciousness that they have about that trauma, they may be capable of harming us in some capacity. And yet still, we continue to open and open. And that's a phenomenal capacity that we can cultivate.
2: Go ahead, say it. What, I followed it. I'm going to follow that. <laughs> what do I have to say now <laughs> That's true. you're right,
1: <laughs> but um what she said
0: well does anything does anything come up for you just around vulnerability and the way that that relates to your practice as an artist?
2: I'm curious oh yeah, I, yes, for sure. Um, yes, I think. What really came up for me with the trust idea is that, you know, if, I, some, if you uh, have addiction issues, this is a great way to understand not trusting yourself. Because if you have addiction issues, you might tell yourself, I'm going to have one beer. And you're certain of it. You're like, oh, yeah, I'll do mindfulness while I'm drinking the beer. And then when I'm done... That'll be the la- that'll be the last beer of the night, and then as soon as that's running out, you're like, oh, I could do a little more mindfulness with the beer, <laughs> and then and then over time, not just with that, but let's say, you know, I'm I get I have struggled with anger, um, most of my life, and you know, th- these people really help with that, but this is exa- anger is an it addic- can be an addiction. You know, you're participating, you decide to react, you decide to, like, blow up. You might not even know you're deciding, probably. At first, you just think you're a victim of, like, circumstance. But over time, you realize, oh, wow, I'm getting off on this. And then, but, you know, if you have, whatever your thing may be, this is, you start, you start, you stop trusting yourself, because all of a sudden, this thing, remember that time I got really mad? When we, it was a long time ago, you don't remember, Raghu. We were, we, do you remember that? We were going, we were standing in front of the, ho- in a hotel, standing in front of the elevator. I was hangry and something flashed in me, and you go, what was that? Who was that? I was
1: at the table, actually. It was at the table, you went like this completely, utterly gone. No commun- interspecies communication, at least nothing. You were gone. Talk and about
2: I- vulnerable. I felt like you saw through my clothes or something. I was just like, you saw it? Damn it. I thought I'd been hiding it from you people. And, I don't
1: think so. Jesus.
2: But you, to me, I think you know, a good place to w- start working with trust is find a way to trust yourself again via some discipline, some practice, so that suddenly you realize you, aren't, you, don't have to, you don't have to blow up every time. You don't have to succumb to the addiction. And then for me, this has been incredible because suddenly I start trusting myself again. I know when I say I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do it. And, and that is, might not be anything to brag about here with all you yogis and people, like monks. and I guarantee there's someone in the room right now can probably walk through a wall or turn into a rainbow who doesn't talk about it but for so no big deal for you guys but for me it's like she i'm sitting next to her but but anyway so for me that's that's trust Mm -hmm. learning to get starting with yourself working with that energy until suddenly you realize you're not succumbing to it anymore then maybe trusting other people becomes easier too Mm. yeah yeah
0: Yeah. can i can I follow that up? Yes, with, please. Like an inquiry. Um, I'm curious about what we mean when we say things like trusting in the self. Because when I try to trust in the self as this body, I feel like an instant failure. The self as Sarah, this body, Um there will come a time when this body will no longer exist. And so for me, there's kind of like a tenuousness in the idea of trusting in something, that, in, in, in an experience that is fundamentally right. impermanent. Sure. And so then I kind of got to go, okay, what, what am I putting my trust in? Am I putting my trust in Sarah, the body, or am I putting my trust in maybe what Ramdas? refers to as the soul or something yeah. greater than this body, mm-hmm. which has no failing. Mm. I'm just kind of curious if that brings up anything.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that is what he, much of uh, a major part of his teachings was around role and identity yeah. and getting behind that, which is the beauty of the last 15 years or so Around. I mean, I trust, loving I'm awareness. So sorry,
2: may I respond? I trust that my body will continue to fall apart. Okay. okay. That's something that's, I can count on. That's it's a, very good on that. That
1: is a very important thing. I and but Excellent. also
2: this uh I love it what you're saying. And because this David and I talk about this all the time. Absolute reality, relative reality. Absolute reality, we're already dead, dust, nothing. This is probably just some memory or something floating in the void we think it's real it's just nothing that's you know we're wall one already in this that that's real for sure but relative reality body here you can trust it it'll probably be here assuming you know things don't get weird in Ukraine and then Iran gets involved and then there's a nuclear war and you probably you might get evaporated but the that's real no that's real <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, but, but yeah. you know you're here it's here yeah. but you know i was still melting candle but still here
1: yeah it's yeah. about a little bit if we take this exactly a little bit further that it's a trust in the reality of impermanence right there has to be a little oh, jack actually talks about making friends with that reality and so yeah. did Jimi Hendrix, by the way. What? I've had my Jimi Hendrix hat this whole retreat. i wonder... What... And then it reminded me. And so castles made of sand slip into the sea eventually. Right? And that is something to get comfortable with. Yeah. That is important, huh? Yeah.
0: That's really radical. <laughs>
1: I just said this is something. Jack, has radical been grandpa.
2: <laughs> you got your Jimmy Hendrix hat. It's cool,
0: man. It's so rad. <laughs> I love you.
1: Thank you so much, Mr. Tressel. For those of you who don't know, by the way, we have been doing this for quite some time he 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 got in touch with me to start a podcast, and oh, he's the podcast guru by the way, everybody. well, you all know that right thank you and uh and so ensued this uh what has it been seems like about ten years or something yeah, yeah. and uh we've had a good time
2: yes, we we've have. had a
1: really good time so one thing that he and I have been working on for years, just like talking about it and recording it, and we're gonna put an audio book together, and it's around what Krishnadas, so aptly, uh, has talked about, many's a time, the movie of me. I get it, You get up in the morning, you're the producer, the director, the protagonist, you're, you're a writer, everything. And it's 24-7, that kind of involvement, In one's life. And taking everything very... You're talking about... Is that Sarai we're talking about? Or the one that's uh, true self behind all of that? Soul, whatever we want to call it. So the idea was... It was from the movie of me to the movie of we. And the progression of that and using our own lives. So you, having the experience that you have and the knowledge you have... One of the things we talked about is the potential for us to reprogram these neurons. And I would like, uh, you know, whatever examples you can give real from your life or any kind of story, whatever, how do we do that? We need to know. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that, um, we live in a society and I'll say, you know, just referring to the United States, And maybe I'll pull back and just speak from a personal perspective. We live in a society that really can inculcate deep feelings of loneliness and isolation from one another. Um, And then that gets capitalized upon. Because the more lonely and the more separate that we feel, then we're sold this idea that, oh, well, you can buy this product And that's going to fill this hole in your heart, you know, that's going to give some sort of shape or texture or nuance to your life that's more and bigger and better and faster and stronger, you know. But it's actually deepening that feeling of void. And what I find interesting about the brain is that the centers that process the feelings of social isolation and loneliness are the same centers that process pain, physical pain. So the more loneliness and the more separation that a person is feeling, um, it's akin to feeling like they're dying. In the research, it's called dying a social death, but the body doesn't understand it's a social death. It thinks it's actually perishing. So the more that we are in the process of noticing when we are othering those around us, right? Creating and germinating all these stories in our minds about why this person is a threat of some kind. I need to push them away and I, you know, and I need to like arm myself and and put on this like psychic armor so that I can prevent them from getting in and taking what's mine. With loving kindness, with compassion practices, we change that neural firing around those centers of the brain that cause us to feel like we're dying a death of loneliness. And we start to build an internal map of interconnection that can really hold us through these times of deep tragedy and loss.
2: That's
0: so cool. That's, so cool.
1: That's right. Wow. Really. That's
2: the example I would wow. Yeah, You know, because they give out these all one stickers. Stickers. And it's always been funny to me that if you cut the L out, it's alone. And you can put that on your car.
1: Only you would think.
2: (laughs) Alone. and Everyone feels sorry for you.
0: Is that a a political statement? What is that? Alone? Well, no.
2: (laughs) What you're saying is so, and it's so cheesy to use any stupid word, whatever, but you are talking about that. Essentially, there is you're talking about this al- alchemical conversion of aloneness to all oneness neurologically, yes. which is really, really cool. And also, like, you know, when you're when someone is even brave enough to say they feel alone, now people knowing that it's like no, they, they their body thinks they're dying. You know, they the, the world they're existing in is. Uh, hell. It's a hell realm. Is, do you, yes, do you yes. get into evolutionary biology and the, yes. the why, why, why? Do you know why that's happening in the brain? Why our brain decided to put the experience of aloneness in the same place as pain? Is there some theory on why we evolved that?
0: Well, I don't know if I want to speak from a place of neuroscience theory, but I think where I would speak from in terms of evolutionary biology is that um, there's a phenomenon that arises where we come, our bodies come into the world and we're completely united with our mother in the womb. And then, <laughs> they're like having a party out there. And then there's this process that gets spoken of not often enough in medicine where there's like a real trauma that happens in the process of being born and separated from the mother, you know, separated from her body. And that's kind of like the first instantiation that we have of separateness and aloneness, And then developmentally, right, we're held against the mother's, you know, chest or breast. You know, we're cradled by our family. But then eventually we have to have another level of separation, right? We have to learn to walk and to stand and to move and to be independent freely. But then there can be this kind of existential loneliness that begins to creep in at an early age, especially if you live in a household where... The practices of attachment are being broken by violence then what do you have to hold on to when you're so small and you're so vulnerable and the people who are supposed to be really creating this experience of interdependence with you are breaking it and shattering it over and over again with um it can be anything from neglect just not being present, just being gone. You know, the body of the parent is here, but where is the real attention, the loving attention? You know, or it can be just going out into the world. I have a daughter um, who will be 15 at the end of this month. I know, I don't look it. And, and, you know, I'm just gonna get real real with y'all. So she went into high school this year, and I had a mother's worst nightmare when she texted me, um, this was about a few weeks ago, and she said, she said, mom, mom, um, someone overheard a kid in the bathroom saying that he's going to bring a gun to school. And we don't know who this kid is. We haven't identified them yet. But what do I do? that's some real shit as a mom to go through. And I'm thinking to myself, what do I say that is possibly a comfort in this moment? I can't deny the reality of school shootings, you know, and her awareness around that, right? And so in that moment, it was lucky really fortunate that we have this connection of deep, loving awareness that I felt like I was able to transmit to her a certain degree of, like, okayness over the phone and what do we do and kind of, like, getting calm and grounded in the body. But I was thinking about all those kids who might not necessarily have that safe relationship with their parents. So the school isn't safe and the home isn't safe. You want to talk about loneliness. You know what I'm saying? Like, this yes. is real deep. Yes. It's real deep what we're facing.
1: We, wow. we uh, probably have talked about this because we talked about your background when we did the podcast a year or so ago. But many people here, you know, uh, the question don't know and maybe didn't listen to it. But the, the question is what are those, the, what is the guiding that happened from inside yourself that you are able to really transform? what we're talking about right now, because you certainly had it in spades. What were the things that came up that you were able to absorb? You mean in,
0: you mean in that moment with my daughter or... No, 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 life? in
1: your growing up life.
0: That transformed my feelings of loneliness? Yeah. Ah. Uh, um, well, there are so many different things. I grew up in a, re- in a really rural setting on the East Coast... And um, my mom, because we were chronically homeless, she had to go out of the home and seek work and we didn't have childcare. So from the age of around six or seven years old, I was left inside of my home um, without childcare. I was by myself. And so a lot of the time, my comfort, my solace was to go out into the forest, into the woods, and I felt in that place of nature, you know, I'm talking about cornfields and apple orchards and just miles and miles of Pennsylvania woods. And I felt so held by the earth. I felt this sense of total integration. There was no separateness. The separateness that I felt was when I went back into my home a lot of the time and I would look into my mother's eyes And I saw the demons that she was battling and I couldn't, I would look into her eyes and I would look for that mirroring, right? We talk about mirror neurons. Every time we look into each other's eyes, we're looking to mirror this interdependence, this togetherness, this, I see you, I hear you, I feel you, I am you. And I didn't get that in the home, but I felt that when I looked up into the sky you know, I felt that climbing the trees. I felt that looking at the bugs. And when I put my belly down on the earth and I got real close and I smelled it, and I was like, this is me, you know? So, yeah. Oh, that's so
1: great. And it, uh, I did uh, read this uh, Thich Nhat Hanh quote, but it's perfect for what we're talking about. again, interbeing is the understanding that nothing exists separately from anything else. We are all interconnected. By taking care of another person, you take care of yourself. By taking care of yourself, you take care of another person. Happiness and safety are not individual matters. If you suffer, I suffer. If you are not safe, I am not safe. There is no way for me to be truly happy if you are suffering. If you can smile, I can smile too. The understanding of interbeing is very important. It helps us to remove the illusion of loneliness and transform the anger. Hello?
0: Anger. Uh,
2: what? That
1: comes from the feeling of separation. Yeah. Uh,
2: did, you, did you, has anyone mentioned the irony of a COVID outbreak at a retreat about interdependence?
1: <laughs> no.
2: Because I think that that is—I'm surprised, because that really is to me like you know how these retreats are—you go to them, you think you're going to have a vacation, but it gets you. Something shows up that you need to address and work through. And I—I I mean, I'm not—it's obviously not funny, in the in like comedically, but for, like if you look—I know we're all going through our own stuff hope, like, at, the, at the at these things we all do and uh but collectively at a retreat about interdependence we're also having to grapple with the reality that some people are getting COVID here that and we all don't know what to do really there's confusion and and there's a vast array of ideas about what should be done about that and it's really interesting, isn't it? That that happened at this retreat. I'm sorry. Did you? We're not supposed to talk about this up here. I'm sorry.
1: With you? Are
2: you okay, kidding? Okay. The, but you know, I think it's really interesting because, you know, you're uh, observing the whole situation. It's fascinating, you know, in the sense that some people are trying to be safe. Some people actively probably have COVID. <laughs> and you know, from the ones who are coughing during the meditation, <laughs> <laughs> which is awesome because you're meditating at a retreat about interdependence and you want to go into your heart and you hear someone start coughing and you're like, someone just kill them.
3: <laughs> oh God.
2: Don't they have snipers at this retreat? <laughs> just kill them now.
0: Get him out of here!
2: <laughs> That's what I caught myself doing. <laughs> no shit! Really? Uh, I... Well, well, you know. So now, but then also, I realized, my God, your go-to thought is like, 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 just out of suddenly the retreat turns into some kind of like hyper-fascist, like. Uh, <laughs> Uh, medical tyranny or, like, the chi- child. Chi- like, let's just go full China here at the Napili Kai and make little pots. Perfect. But then oh the next thought I had was, my God, at some point when I hear that, I'm not going to be like, someone, like, arrest, execute, drag out, immolate. Uh, it's going to be, I wonder if I could do anything to help them. I wonder if I can help. I wonder if there's some way to send them love, or my first go-to is not like, oh, this is going to affect me, and poor me. It's more like, I'm sorry they're sick. I wish I could help. Hmm. Shifting over into that. The place. movie of me
1: to the movie of we. is sorry, really that, Yes,
2: that. Yeah, and maybe that naive thing you're talking up front, that's what that is. Maybe it's naive to be like, instead yeah, of like, exactly. put on a mask and get out of my face, to yeah. be like, Let me help you. (laughs) What do you need? How can I help you? Maybe, you know what I mean? But I think it's a possibility. And maybe it would be better to get COVID and to be constantly angry at people who you thought had COVID. Maybe COVID is less damaging than carrying around that paranoia and anger all over the place.
1: Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and then we come back to trust, because look, we're all here in this one moment. We're dealing with it, as you say. Each yes. person has that relationship going on with it, which is a uh, gut level human thing. Is usually the first thing. Did I hug that person, or oh God, what's going to happen here? What uh, I better go. T- you know, the me me is the. F- but then there is a wait. What do we do collectively? What can we do for each other? Which is what you just said. And that is the satsang, and that support is yeah. extremely important. Yes.
0: And I think also what I love about your, like, your, <laughs> I don't even know, it's just like your aliveness in that moment is that you're bringing the presence of like real demons and shadows in our society, and it can be so easy, I'm completely guilty of this, to look at the news and the violence that is happening locally, nationally, and globally, and point the finger and be like, and how can they? How can they exercise, how can't exercise those demons, bring them out into the world? That shadow, that's not me. And then a huge part of like a Zen, I guess, practice for me, is to actually turn within and say, where does that reside within me? To what degree does that same energy reside within me? And to really grapple with that because there are times, okay, I get to tell this story now. I was hoping I would get to tell this. (laughs) So I'm in the hall about to get some lunch and I wasn't wearing my be here now, be be sort serve love uh, wristband. (laughs) and the woman looks at me and she's like you can't have a plate and I'm looking at her and I'm like but you've seen me a zillion times we've spoken I've had eye contact we've had a soul-to-soul moment you know who I am you know who we all are she says yeah oh yeah I've seen you I know who you are and you still can't have a plate and in that moment I can't tell you how many terrible things went through my mind. And, you know, I had friends sticking up for me like, but she's a teacher here. You're not going to give her a plate, right? Nope. And as I'm walking away to my room, and I'm feeling that shadow and that rage just gurgling and that entitlement gurgling up inside me, that how dare you? I'm a teacher here. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And then it was such a wonderful moment to practice with my shadow and be like, Oh, there you are, babe. Yes. There you are. Okay. Let's, let's feed these demons. Let's like, have you, any of you heard of the practice of feeding your demons? Right. And so I was just watching them arising and I was like, oh, we have a glorious snack charcuterie platter to feed you today. Oh, yum, 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 yum. You know, and then by the time I got out of my room, I was like, oh, okay, uh uh-huh. And I'm going to be in this recognizing, accepting, investigating. I'm going to non-identify from this rage. I'm going to look this woman in the eye when I go back for my plate. And I'm going to look at her with love. And that was the practice. You know what I'm saying?
1: Good opportunity. Yeah. Great
2: opportunity. Yeah. (laughs) Next time, what you do... You go in and you ask any of us for a wristband, and they'll just give it to you. Then you don't have to go back to your room. Oh, we tried. Oh, we tried, didn't we, my sister? Oh yeah, she wasn't
0: having none of that. She's like, "You will not use an unauthorized." She was like, "You will not you ear will now not. wristband." You will not. Rock <laughs> buffet line. food. But then also, um, my homie Jazzy had this wonderful moment where she was reflecting on well, how are the people who work here being treated such that go. they feel that they have to have this, I called it, narc mentality? <laughs> now you're getting how, into it. That's, you know what I mean? And so then we had an incredible conversation about, um, I wanted to make a Dharma talk, I told you, about being present with the inner narc or something like that. That's Just great. this idea that, that we're taught to police ourselves in our own meditation practices, in our own contemplative practices. We can be policing our thoughts and our feelings and our sensations and emotions, judging ourselves, right? And just, like, those demons can really unfurl. And so the quality of attention that we're paying to our inner experience, that's where that loving awareness comes in, right? Because you can, like, notice that tendency to police your own experience and be like, ah, loving awareness. Loving awareness is what is needed here, because that's not gonna get us anywhere, but more separation.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I think what you said there, that part of it, because that's, I know exactly what you mean. It's exactly, the identical thing happened to me. Except, you know, I really tried to fake spiritual smile my way through it too. And also I wasn't wearing shoes. So. <laughs> So not only did I get d- d- rejected for the plate thing, she's like, you got to put shoes on those vulture claws you're walking around. On. So then, <laughs> what, are you gonna, what are you doing? You know, that's worse than COVID, my feet wandering by the buffet. Well, I'm Telling getting you, in line to with to put you I'm masks again. on yeah. my feet. Um, well, no, what, but I think getting into that, because, like, who, who wants to be in charge of turning spiritual people away from food at a, at a buffet? Like, is there a worse job on earth having to deal with hungry people trying to be spiritual? <laughs> <laughs> Compassion for them. Because, you know, I, I'm sure she wasn't like, please, yes, please let me be the buffet cop. Today at this spiritual retreat, somebody right. was like, You right? If I see yes. anybody in here not wearing their wristband. Yeah, that's your, your, that's your job, or something creepy like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, this is good to recognize that. Yeah, this is this person that's a rough gig. Yeah,
1: but the roughest part of the game is getting completely involved in it, right. But it's perfect because, as you just said, it gave you, as Ramdas used to say, opportunity, big time opportunity, to witness. He, you know, the feeding the demon, uh, and looking at Mirabai and saying, uh, remembering, not you, no, oh. Ramdas, remember how he used to say when he came back from India the first time. You have all of these dark emotions and thoughts and so on called and you invite them in for a cup of tea. This is way before you know feeding the demons came along. This was a, a practice around all witness and, and so on that he gave at that time, which is still extremely useful uh, for all of us.
2: That's what they tell the buffet workers here. You're gonna be feeding the demons for the <laughs> next <laughs> They seem nice, but oh my God. Yeah, make
1: sure they have a wristband, these demons, yeah. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) I got another quote. (laughs) You okay? (laughs) 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 Any change in your mind, positive or negative, affects all others. The wish-granting gem tree is a morphic resonance field. The energy of one contains within it the energy of all. Every action affects all other actions. Whenever you turn your mind towards the wish-granting gems, everyone else's mind is turned in that way too. The planet's mind turns with your mind. If you let your mind go in some negative, paranoid, self-indulgent, distracted way, the planet's mind turns in that way you are totally interconnected with everything bob thurman a pretty pretty great quote but we talk about the interconnectivity we've been talking about it for the last number of of days between us and actually this thing with covid is a way in which it really emphasizes that connectivity because of what this virus is and how it acts and how it bounces, and uh, uh, from person to person, and all of that, uh, it's a bit of a tough lesson in terms of a lesson about the the reality and the nature how we are connected, no matter what. As as uh, in this quote, can you talk a little bit, uh, Sarah, about the the way in which that acts, and you have seen that, you have studied that the connection between neurons and so on, and molecular, at the molecular level. The way in which we say these things, but they are real. You have actually seen it from a, a, the scientific point of view. And of course, His Holiness has been doing this great work around showing, working with Richard, Richard Davidson and another scientist, how... What they have come up with, their the Tibetan reality and, and perspective is being shown to be truth. Can you talk a little about that?
0: Yeah, I absolutely love this terminology that you use, morphic resonance field. Um, and it reminds me that... <clears throat> so... Uh, In the brain, the reason why you're able to perceive what it is that you're feeling inside, right, sensations and feelings and emotions, is that the brain has something called interoceptive awareness. So the brain, I love this, Antonio Damasio, the neuroscientist, says the brain is a map maker. The brain is a cartographer. It is constantly constructing for you what your internal experience is, and then relaying it in a feedback loop. You have exteroceptive awareness. That's how I know the temperature of the wind on my skin. You know, That's how um, I know when someone reaches out and like touches me, right? They're in my external environment, they reach out, and then my brain takes that moment and it weaves it all together seamlessly in this experience of self that we're having in every moment, right? Now here's the fun part. Have you ever been having really shady thoughts about someone and thought that they didn't know, they couldn't feel that about you? You thought that you were kind of like getting over on them, you know, being kind of like sly? And then they give you a look and you realize that they're onto you. I'm sure if anybody is like married here, then maybe you've had that experience, right? Some of the research on interoceptive awareness is around how when we are producing these neurochemical substrates around emotion and I'm feeling strong emotion, I'm feeling anger, I'm feeling hatred, I'm feeling sadness, I'm feeling whatever it is. There's something in my nervous system, it's almost like an internet, that can pick up on... Your internal subjective reality, and then begin to map it into my own. So it seems as though there's all this like space between us that's full of emptiness, but the space between us is full of information. It's filled with like a super highway of information that we are receiving from one another about our internal realities. And so in my research, I like to say, that when two or more people come together, we create a collective nervous system. So you have individual nervous system, and then you have a collective nervous system in this room, that's what we are. And we're sharing energy and information about our realities with one another, right? And so that's really powerful because what that means is that as I'm cultivating states of loving awareness and compassion and, forgiveness inside of myself, then I get to kind of send that out through this super highway of the collective nervous system that's between us and transform the room around me.
2: That's so cool. But, you know, that is so cool. But It's so cool, especially when you connect it to the meta practice. Because, you know, anytime, well, at least in the beginning, when you hear about meta Send out love to the universe or whatever. Loving kindness back. Send out loving kindness to everybody, to the universe. But when you hear it and it sounds nice, but you're like, that's not going to do anything. Like that's thoughts and prayers or whatever. Like when a horrible thing happens and someone sends thoughts and prayers,
0: you it
2: feels like that. But what you're saying is, in fact, you're not just kissing in the wind, so to speak. You're, you're actually in shifting your own consciousness you are that's the real teaching or that's the real i mean the dharma this is in that awesome movie what was it called the what the butterfly the one you just showed us
1: oh brilliant disguise
2: brilliant disguise and you hear this again and again in stories about maharaji he didn't give dharma talks we were just hanging out and it sounds like what's going on there from
1: right that's good
2: is he's beaming through that invisible internet yeah. All of his teachings, even though it just seems like not much is going on at all. Yeah. yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Your yeah. presence. Yeah, that's really also in my, research, in my research. In my research, I have found <laughs> Oh God. Haven't you oh. noticed, Ragu, that uh, and I'll shut up after this. Haven't you noticed you have not taken LSD, but your friend has. And suddenly you're hanging out with him and you start tripping. But you haven't taken acid. This has happened to me so many times. I've done a lot of research in the subject. So this is, is it it possible that a similar thing is happening via, like, the psychedelic state could be transmitted in a similar way?
0: Well, in as much as, you know, the, the LSD that you're taking is producing strong neurochemical changes and shifts throughout the brain and the nervous system, absolutely. Wow.
1: That yeah. is blind. Okay, here's here's a story. I, I'm not sure these guys that are sitting right over here, Mirabai and Ramesh, very well know the story. But one day, again, okay, Krishna has talked about us being way up in the mountains. Maharaji sent us up to do a meditation course with a, the with a Menindraji. Buddhist teacher, meditation teacher, who couldn't come, and we ended up there, and it was just a half a dozen of us, with uh, or less with Ramdas, and then Maharaji kept sending everybody that was Western that came by, go oh, go meditate with Ramdas, who like was freaked that that happened. Anyhow, it was so many people we had to go. Over, we took over what was called the Gandhi, what was the Gandhi ashram. It's where he had written one of his great books. I don't remember which one. And so we were all up there, and you know, say there was about, I don't know, 15 people, dozen and a half people, each one had their own room. And one of us had asked Maharaji if he could take a psychedelic, actually ketamine. And Maharaji said, Yeah, in the mountains, it's, you know, go. He said it was fine. So he did. And then he got Ramdas. Ramdas didn't need a lot of encouragement, although about taking anything. But Ramdas went into his room and he took a, a very large dose, I would believe. So happened, I was right above this guy's room where Ramdas was, and there was a, a, a hole in the floor, and you could hear everything anyhow. Between there was like paper-thin walls, and I heard this incredible uh, sounds like. Not from this earth. It sounded like this silver surfer was flying through the universe. And Ramdas was making these extraordinary sounds. And I'm looking, I'm going, oh my god, and, and just waving his arms and his body. It was insane. So I ran down there, I didn't know what to think. And and then everybody else who had heard, they all came out of their rooms and we went into this guy's room and Ramdas was laid out splayed completely. I mean, in a state, I've never really seen anybody quite in that state. And we all grabbed on to a different part of his body. And we were completely gone for a week. We, we would sit and, and, and have meals together that were completely silent, ended up just in these, this uproarious laughter or something nonverbal. Went on for a week. So it's true. Wow. really well. Did
2: you say that was ketamine? Yeah. <laughs> wow,
1: horse tranquilizer, which Not really. Yeah. Not really a horse tranquilizer. We'll have a pharmacologist. I mean, it's an anything. Talk tranquilizer. about this later. You know, but um we've got <laughs> this incredible doctor with us, and I thought I don't think we've had a chance, but perhaps if we would like to maybe ask a question or two, for many of us for that matter but look how lucky i got asking a couple of questions that you gave phenomenal what do we yes mirabai that
2: pcp makes way more which sense. It, was PCP, it was pcp ragu not ketamine
1: it, i've heard from pharmacologists that there is Didn't a direct link straight? between ketamine and pcp okay by
2: the way that's the last thing you want to hear when you thought you did ketamine <laughs>
1: yeah somebody will know about that do we have a mic somewhere okay anybody got a question there's a gentleman in the back right there uh on thank you um
3: in the beginning of the talk you were equating aloneness
1: with loneliness which seemed a bit strange to me you're using the words interchangeably and you know aloneness I could be sitting as you yourself discussed in the woods, feeling very alone but very connected, not needing anything beyond whatever's
3: happening in that moment, versus loneliness where you're looking for connection So I,
0: right I think i i was only I was only saying loneliness I, I
2: messed it up you're both you're both used you're, uh, both used you're right changeably yeah, totally right, yeah, there is a okay. big difference I, yeah. you're totally I agree with you one hundred percent yeah. Um, I noticed a couple of times you kept using the word demons and um, from my own experience I've had like a, on psychedelics like where I felt like I was exercising a demon I didn't see it but that's what it kind of felt like and I was wondering if you could put demon in more like scientific terms or if you actually think it's like a conscious
0: energy or if it's just like a Like, how do you scientifically explain demons? That is a fantastic question. And I would be completely bullshitting if I told you that I could answer that in a a scientific way, I think. I mean, there's so many things that I could say about that, but I think it might be a little bit misleading.
1: But... You know, in traditional, in many of the mystic traditions, it is used as a palatia uh, is probably disturbing thoughts, emotions, etc. Just deal with it that level. And as far as you know, a psychedelic trip that has an entity, or you know, you hear. of of many different people working with teachers to rid themselves of something that was inside them, like, you know, perhaps addiction. But just the everyday disturbing emotions is enough for us to, you know, work on inviting them in rather than pushing them away. I mean, that's one
2: thing. But, you know, as far as like some scientific demonic entity, You know, that's cool. It's very HP Lovecraft, and it'd be really cool if they could, if they found that finally. Like, holy shit, there's really demons. But I think just as a tool, the word's really useful. Like, and I love the invited in for tea stuff, but you know, after like how many times are you gonna invite a hangover in for tea? Like, at some point, it it keeps wanting more tea. And so then you're like, oh, sometimes, and for not for other people, but for myself. Using language like that, not to beat myself up, but to create a, a more dramatic game, you know, it, it has been useful. Or it's like, look, this is a demon. This thing is demonic in what it's doing. It seems it is, it's me, but it's not me. You watch it. You, it possesses me. If you've ever been addicted to smoking, I just got addicted to vaping. Did I tell you that? Yeah. Oh, I've been chomping Nicorette. It's so embarrassing, but you're watching your hand bring this embarrassing-looking phallic thing to your mouth, and you're inhaling sweet nicotine, and you're watching your hand go down, and you—you you, at some point you're like, "What is the difference between this and demon being possessed by a demon, being possessed by a very garish, embarrassing demon? You know, this is—it's killing me." It's in my hand. Are you really possessed by a demon? No. You just are being lazy. You should quit vaping. But to me, any language that works to get you off of a thing like that, I think it's useful.
0: Yeah, and I kind of I want to opine that, in my opinion, not every phenomena that we experience with our souls and our spirits can be distilled into scientific language. Just because my profession is as a scientist doesn't mean that I believe that all phenomena in the universe are explained. This is just one type of language. It's just one perspective, one lens that is fundamentally um, constructed and shaped very subjectively according to who is in power, who has been empowered to become scientists, right? And that's influenced by capitalism that's influenced by racism that's influenced by so many different things that have been existing before science was an enterprise and so i don't want to elevate science to some sort of like you know supernatural authority on all the things that we experience and i think it's important to be grounded in that perspective personally
1: wonderful very awesome thanks That's beautiful. Next question. Up in here, there's... Oh.
2: Hi. Um, Earlier,
0: when you were explaining the story about um, what are the buffet workers being told that they have to act like such a narc, um, that was a way of sort of rationalizing what you were feeling. Um, And in that moment, that made me... (laughs) to my own experience how i tend to rationalize to avoid feeling my feelings and i feel kind of stuck right now um do you have any advice for how i could like lean into that without having like my therapist says that's good like that you try to have this empathy for people but you just have it backwards you got to feel then maybe like try to understand the other person so how do i flip that instead of rationalizing first Hmm. may i ask if it makes sense how does it feel? Can you kind of take yourself to a moment when you're rationalizing? How does that feel? Can you describe it in words of sensation in your body? I want to say it's like love because I'm trying to understand the other person. Are you saying like, like uh, texture, like a color? Temp, like... Any, any words that come to mind, it's all valid. Yeah. Mm when you're rationalizing. Because I may have one idea about what that word means, rationalizing, like in my mind, when I'm rationalizing, I'm being very cognitive, mm-hmm. right? So I'm using my mind and my brain to figure out something and I might be in that way bypassing what's going on in my heart and in the rest of my body. But that's just my understanding. Yes. I, would, I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: And also, uh, again, Ramdas's prescription, uh, which completely transforms perspective to be able to even get a deeper connectivity without judgment, cynicism, all the kinds of thoughts that we have about ourselves, is that practice of loving awareness. And he used to say, just breathe into the middle of your chest and move from your head, from stories that you believe in and the thoughts that you believe in and the ego that you feel this is what i need to trust in order to protect myself and into that place just taking some deep breaths in, and i am loving awareness or just loving awareness and suddenly you're looking at the world with a completely different lens it really helps what he did for the last 15 years on that well, Ten or twelve years, whatever it was, uh, was extraordinary.
2: Are you in your head? Do you find yourself in your head a lot? Is it...
0: I, I guess. I guess. And that's so natural. Yeah. Though. Like I, I feel as though like that feeling of being in our heads and with our egos gets kind of um,
1: habit forming. Habit forming.
0: Yes, it is habit forming. But 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 also, I think it's part of the experience of being human. And so you can have great compassion for yourself around that experience. Like it's, it's natural and it's okay. And it's a part of the practice of just recognizing, you know, in that moment and bringing yourself that compassion because that's how we were built. Yeah. Thanks guys.
1: Yeah. And we have uh, Jack who has, uh, a billion times said, it's okay to be human. It's okay, just that kind of compassion for yourself.
4: Thanks so much for this. First of all, I just wanna say how much I respect all the teachers that have been up there. I think you guys are great. I've learned a lot, it's been been a good experience. Not not the guy on the left,
2: though. My wife's boyfriend, everybody. (laughs) There he is.
4: <laughs> that's hilarious.
2: I thought um, you were watching the kids. <laughs> well, that's what
4: she says she's doing. <laughs> um, I wanted to make a comment about loneliness. When I got sober 15 years ago, I, you know, I bottomed out, and like a lot of people, when they bottom out, I was a mess, and I got sober between Austin, Texas, and L.A. And I was in Austin. It might have been the second AA meeting I ever attended. And I really had no clue where I was. And I looked in a little book, and it said, oh, you know, X time, X day. I just went there. I walked in, and I looked around, and I realized I was in a room full of really sketchy people. What I thought were sketchy people, judged to be sketchy people. And I was in a prison halfway house, and I didn't know it. And... um being you know at that transition point my mind went cuckoo all my classism stuff came up i didn't have a lot of racist stuff because of how i was brought up but boy oh boy did i go into us and them with class and i was such in a pity pot about loneliness and um Probably the second person to share, and in AA, by the way, we call these God shots when something happens, like as if it's almost directly to you. This young African-American woman raises her hand and says, I just got out of prison and I want to share with everybody that I've learned the difference between loneliness and solitude. And I went, wow. You know, she said, I didn't get sober because I wanted to. They threw me in jail. Nobody gave a shit that I was going through withdrawals of, you know, and she gave this list of stuff. And then I learned that I was in solitude. The difference is loneliness is where you feel lack. And solitude is where you use it to make a contribution to yourself. Beautiful. And she changed my life. I wish she was was around. I could tell her what she did for me. So I just wanted to pay it forward and... Mm. What beautiful to the group! Wonderful. Now I'll call your wife. I'll so magnificent! Later.
0: Thank you. Yeah.
3: Oh, Sorry for uh, walking in late, but. Um, Ram Dass often felt that science had not come to a definition of uh, consciousness. And it sounds like things have progressed a lot in over these last decades. But um, I, I was thinking of the way that the Gita describes the field and the knower of the field. And whether that model is kind of what is beginning to... Apply to our understanding of how we experience uh, awareness, consciousness, um, but to w- what extent that's really been uh, um, taken beyond the just the conceptual idea that's in uh, Bhagavad Gita. the Bhagavad
0: Gita—the idea of the the knower of the field. Yeah, well, the field that you refer to is what I was talking about in terms of like this collective nervous system, right? So there's a collective nervous system that we're sharing as humans, but then that's overlaid with the collective nervous system of plants and animals and, the, you know, every single ecosystem that you can think of in the earth, right? Right. But in terms of this idea of the knower, what I think is really interesting is this research that's looking at how we think that neurons may be communicating with light, right? And so it's almost like when you think about the source of light, the birthplace of light coming from you know, whether you want to call it the Big Bang, the center of the universe, you know, our our absolute beginnings as something that exists. And then that somehow being involved in the very circuitry of how it is that we can know as individuals that we exist. I think that's really something. Wow. Wonderful. (laughs) You look like something else is percolating up. Well,
3: he'll have to. Oh, it's, um, you know, clearly a being like Maharaji is in tune with that field in in a way that um, things like um, individuality and other people's thoughts and uh, time even were not... uh, uh, immediately relevant to his perception. You no, know, he he talked about things that uh, were yet to happen, and uh, he seemed to have uh, a perception of incarnations over time. When uh, he used to put another of the devotees into samadhi, and he uh, said, I can do this because we've been together over many lifetimes. So that um, change in a uh, concept of how we experience this moment, and whether it's photons or um, some other kind of uh, um, waves that we haven't yet experienced, and as you say, the unified field of nature and... Uh, Time and light and relativity and all of that is uh, uh, rather wonderful to contemplate.
0: Yeah, it is. It's such a beautiful example of how interdependence is really built into, you know, the, the very mechanism of how it is that we exist. Yeah.
1: And with Maharaji, as you're reminding uh, Ramesh, the fact that there was no polarization. I mean, we all experienced this. There was no polarization. This being you knew beyond your mind that there wasn't somebody going, there's a me and there's a you. That was completely disappeared. And he it was only, what can I do for you? The only reason that being is here is what can I do for you? And that suggests everything that we're talking about, which is... And what you were talking about, yeah, the initial thing with COVID is fear of oneself. And then there's a sudden, well, wait a minute. What what can I do to help? You know, and that that is, uh, you know, that um, volition to do that. It's like Ramdas came back from India the first time and he was told, don't speak about me by Neem Karoli Baba. Don't talk about me. And that's all he did. And I asked him about it last summer. Uh, not last summer, God. The summer before he died. And I said, why did you do that? He said, I, I, I couldn't not share. I don't know. You know, it's like he didn't know what to say. He had no intellectual thing about it. He just couldn't do it. He had to do it. And ultimately, just like, okay, what can I do now? And that, that is, to me, the core of what we're talking about—interbeing, interconnectivity—I
2: I think the work you're doing is so important. You know, they, one of the things they talk about—you uh, know—when people think of Ramdas, they think uh, he was so talented. He was so good at taking a lot of this Eastern mystical stuff that, you know, especially in those days, it seems it seems so out there. And he took it and he put it through this lens of, you know, emergent Western psychology. And then that is how it clicked in so many of our minds. Because, you know, if you read the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali or the what's the, uh, the third patriarch of Zen, what's that called? The, if you read, you know, if you hear these things, they initially they can seem dry or just inaccessible. And so he had this ability of converting that into a way we could understand. But what you're doing is taking is taking that one level deeper, which is going into the hardcore language of science, and I think that's very, very important because you know that's always seemed like an inaccessible place, and it's a it's a and it's a protected place because so many quacks and you know people with like if, if, if like propose this or that, and it doesn't hold up. So I'm curious. Do you find yourself in some of these conversations hesitating to talk about it because of the... Many scientists I know off record and definitely not in front of people are more willing to say things because you all have to get funding for research and you can't get funding, just like you said, if people start getting a sense of like, wait a minute, are you one of those consciousness people? Are you one of those people who believe in telepathy or whatever? which which you know is 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 problematic until someone finds a way yeah. to come up with a perfect language to get the funding to get to the point where we can quantify the stuff you're talking about making it not cool anymore and completely boring
0: <laughs> 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 i might be one of those quacks um no uh you know um In a moment of honesty, I I do consider myself to be pretty fringe as a neuroscientist Um, because, um, you know, in my research, I've developed this map of awareness. And in the map of awareness that I developed, it starts with the individual body and then it moves out to the experience of the collective body, the environment, society and culture. But at the very center of this map of awareness, I have placed pure awareness, being a place where dreams and consciousness and imagination come from. So I'm putting things that are fundamentally unquantifiable inside of a map that produces data visualizations of quantifiable phenomena. And I'm doing that on purpose to say, hey, Actually, it's very important that we include those aspects of our experience of the body and the reality, which we can't put on a freaking chart. It's very important because it's real. Why is it real? Because we feel it, and that's what matters, you know? So I'm happy to be that.
1: Yeah, that's all. Yeah,
2: awesome. awesome.
1: Thank you so much. Is Mirabai Star here? Okay, I want to give credit to Mirabai for the fact that we got to know each other, did a podcast, arranged this, and and, uh, yeah, thank you for being here. I really, thank you.
0: Thank you. you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Um, And uh, Mirabai actually has a wonderful quote to end all of... uh, to end this session and uh, put a uh, bow around the theme. The path of the mystic, and we are all on that path, leads from the illusion of separation to the reality of divine union manifested as interdependence with all that is. To walk as a mystic in this world is to recognize that our lives are interpenetrated with the lives of all sentient beings and that the one we love shines from every nexus in that web of interbeing. Whenever we tend to a single strand, we are participating in the care of the whole. When we turn our face from the suffering of any being and walk away, we are exiling ourselves from our beloved. nearby star. Thank you all for for being here today. Thank you, Duncan too. It's my always pleasure. my pleasure. Oh, it's my pleasure.
2: My pleasure. <laughs>